0: Tonight's New Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. You can find that on page 2 of your bulletin. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan. I serve as an elder and a ministry intern here at Grace Downtown. It's a privilege to be back up in front of my church family tonight. Uh, will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for the gift of this word, for these strong and um, hopeful words, God. Lord, we, uh, we need your spirit. I need your spirit. We pray that you would um, bestow your blessing abundantly in this place tonight. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So as Andrew touched on earlier this time of year, I think it's a lot of people reflecting on things as we look back on the year gone by. We're approaching um, the end of 2019, as crazy as that sounds. And for some of us, it flew by way too quickly. For some of us, it crawled almost excruciatingly slowly. For some of us watching kids grow up, we might marvel at how much older they seem this year around Christmas time than they have in the past and how quickly time is passing. For some of us getting older ourselves, we can't believe that 2020, this futuristic year off in the distance, is finally here. For some of us this last year was just more of the same in a good way. For some of us it was more of the same in all the worst ways. But then we have this moment when the clock strikes midnight in a few days on New Year's Eve, and all of a sudden we have this new beginning to look forward to, at least that's the narrative we get around this time of year, right? I do think that most of us at some point leading up to the new year will take a few moments to look ahead to 2020, to think about what it might be like, to think about maybe what we're afraid it will be like, to think about what we hope it will be like. Our community spent some time this fall uh, thinking about time together, thanks to our retreat speaker, Stuart McAlpine, who led us as a church family in how we think about and relate to time as Christians. For those of us who were there, I think we came away um, with a new perspective on the importance of spending time intentionally and how we relate to time and how we respond to the inevitable passage of time. One of the main overarching ideas that he talked about during his time with us was this really incredible idea in the Christian faith that we live our lives with a future perspective. We live our lives looking ahead. This world is moving towards something. We're part of a story that began long ago and that is being guided with each passing year toward its climactic end. This passage from Hebrews 4 uh, taps into this idea, this future orientation that we have as believers. The central focus of this passage and really uh, of the whole large section that comes before it is in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let's unpack this together for a while tonight. Now we picked up our um, reading at a transition point in this section of Hebrews. There's a little background and some context that we need to provide together. One of the major questions of the early church during the time when this was written, is what do we do with all of the religious practices and traditions that we've inherited over the years and that we've practiced ourselves before the coming of Christ? Most members of the church at this time came out of the Jewish faith, and they rightly understood that Christ was the fulfillment of the scriptures that we have recorded in the Old Testament. But there were still questions about how exactly to think of the implications of this. So a lot of what the book of Hebrews is doing is trying to answer some of these questions. Before our passage, the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time exploring uh, one of these questions in particular, and that is, what do we do with the idea of the promised land? This is one of the defining themes of the entire Old Testament. We read about it together in Exodus 6 tonight, this promise that God makes to the Israelites while they are enslaved in Egypt that he will bring them to a land that will be a home to them. These people who had been enslaved for centuries, who had had no place to call their own, were promised a land that would be theirs. God would be their God. He would make them into a great nation in that land. And he goes on to do it. God miraculously frees the Israelites from the bondage of their oppressors, the Egyptians, and they start on this journey towards the promised land. Now they end up spending a lot more time wandering around on their way there than they should because of their acts of rebellion. But eventually God does lead them to this land under their leader Joshua, which was referenced here in the first verse we read tonight. Now we fast forward to the time when Hebrews was written. The Jewish people are living in this land, but it was under someone else's control. Foreign governments were ruling over them. So there's this very powerful idea at this time that is really impactful on the Jewish tradition around the time that this was written, that there's this strong desire to have a control over their own land again, to reestablish the nation of Israel as an independent nation, free from what they perceive as oppressive rulers ruling over them. This land was such a huge part of the identity of the people of Israel, and so there's this question for these Christians coming out of the Jewish tradition, how are we supposed to understand the promised land? Is this land still the destiny of God's people? Are we in the promised land right now? Is this it? If we go back to chapter three, the author of Hebrews starts this argument that sets up the section we just read, and it's kind of a complex argument, but he really comes to a pretty simple conclusion. He basically says this promised land, this central part of the Israelite identity, it was always meant to point to something else. It was always meant to point to something off into the future. It was never supposed to be God's final promised blessing for his people. promise was never about just this physical piece of land that they lived in. There was always a greater promise for them. And that greater promise still remains. So that's his argument. There's a future reality that you are looking forward to as believers. You're still travelers on your way to your final rest. Heaven still awaits us to so let us therefore strive to enter that rest. But I think there might be a little bit of a, a point of discomfort here in the way that the author of Hebrews' words this. actually especially for those of us who have been in the church for a while. What exactly is he telling us to strive for? What are we supposed to be working for? I thought I was saved by grace. Am I missing something? Do I need to be working to achieve something, to achieve a place in heaven? Now if you're new to the church or to Christianity, I want to be clear, this is really the central focus of the Christian faith. This is the whole point, is that God offers grace to people who don't deserve it. that grace is a free gift. This eternal heavenly rest that this text is pointing to, we can't earn that for ourselves. We're not capable of it. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earn salvation on our behalf for anyone who would put their faith in him. We are 100% saved by grace, that is clear. But the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he understands the reality of human experience. Being a faithful follower of Christ does not mean that things will go easy for you, for your whole life. Does not guarantee that 2020 will be an easy year for you. For some of us, our, our whole lives might even feel like striving. But for all of us, we will have seasons of striving seasons of struggle, even if you believe the gospel down to the very core of your being, even if you have a deep understanding of the grace of God and what this means for you, you will have times of trials and suffering. We don't have God's eternal perspective with which to look at our own lives. We are bound in time in these seasons. There will be times when you have significant doubts. There will be times when You are going to battle temptation. You will battle temptation for your whole life. At some point in your life, you will have a very powerful little voice in your head that says it would just be so much easier if you could just give in to some of those thoughts, those temptations. There will be seasons of your life where coming to church and singing songs of worship, which used to be a very sweet experience, a very soul-refreshing experience, will feel empty. At some point, you will probably have to give up something in your personal life for your career because of your faith. And of course, these words are also true for Christians around the world today and throughout history who have faced periods of intense suffering for their faith. So we're not being called here to conquer our doubts. We're not being called here to reach a point where we are never tempted or to overpower the hard circumstances that we encounter in our lives. We're being called to press on, to persevere in faith, looking ahead. We are not home yet. Our final rest still awaits us, and so we look forward. So how exactly are we to strive as people on this journey? We get two aids that the author of Hebrews um, highlights here in this text for us tonight. First, the word of God. As you strive in this life, remember that God has given you the word in Scripture to be your God. What's really being highlighted here is the power of the word of God as you strive. We get this really vivid description here in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, I feel like you could write a whole sermon on each one of those points, but uh, Hannah told me that a two-hour sermon probably wasn't a great idea. Lucky for you all. This is strong language that we get here. It's powerful language. The word of God can impact us down to the very core of who we are. These are not dead words, they're active. They're sharp, they're not dull. And this might not always be an encouraging message that we get from these words in scripture. The message that we encounter has the power to expose. This might sound pretty harsh, the way this is worded, but as we strive towards our heavenly rest, this might be exactly what we need. Words like this. If our hearts are deceptive, if we're callous towards others, if we're callous towards God, if we're just putting on a show for others but we actually have self-centered hearts and self-centered habits, the best thing that could happen to us is to have those things exposed. The word of God is powerful. It might not tell you what you want to hear but it will be a help for you. And the reason why the word of God can be convicting for us, why it can expose us, and even when it brings the darkness of our sin into the light, is that we're not left with a guilty conscience when it does that. You do not need to be afraid of what you might read. We are not dependent on our own performance to draw strength from the word of God. And this is the second aid that we have in our travel. We have a perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. Now the priests of the Old Testament, the priests of the Jewish religion, Uh, who led the people into the presence of God, they were both flawed and limited, which means that they were not only sinners, but they died at the end of their life to be replaced by new priests. But Christ is the better high priest. He walked in our shoes. He lived a fully human life on this earth. And while he was tempted in every way that we are in his human flesh, he did not sin. And so because of this perfect obedience, he can actually enter into the presence of God after his resurrection and ascension. And because he is also the eternal Son of God, he is at the right hand of Father for the rest of time. Not only is he at the right hand of the Father, but he loves us, and he loves his people, and he invites them in to that presence with him to encounter the throne of grace, to come and approach God, their Father, in prayer at any time we have need. Christ both perfectly understands our weakness and at the same time is powerful enough to offer us access to God to aid us in our struggles. So when we are striving through suffering and temptation, where does our help come from? Not from our own performance, from the one who has gone before us and has already completed his journey, the one who has gone on ahead but reaches back for his friends to carry us with him. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He has promised that those who are heavy burdened, to them he will give rest. So the message we get is this. You have what you need to strive in your journey. The word of God will accompany you. You have a perfect savior, a perfect mediator whom you can always turn to. These two things are highlighted here. There are so many other themes in Hebrews throughout this book that we could draw out together. Uh, The power of the community of faith, the power of the witness of those who have gone before us, of God's faithful saints, the sacraments we celebrate every week. We have what we need by the grace of God, so let us strive to enter that rest. We are called to strive because we are pilgrims on a journey who are not yet in our final home. And we have been given what we need to strive in this life, but what exactly are we being called to strive to? This description of heaven as rest might seem Uh, a little odd to modern ears. The idea of heaven still seems to fit in with most people's thinking. The vast majority of Americans still believe in heaven, so this idea still fits into our social consciousness. Even as religious participation declines, somehow we still have this conception of heaven. But I think if you stop people on the street and ask them what they thought heaven would be like, you probably would not get a lot of talk about rest just from the average person. I think you'd probably hear something uh, like what is depicted in that show, The Good Place. It's such a a clever and happy little show, Uh, a lot of fun to watch, a lot of wonderful things about it, but it it presents this really simplified view of the afterlife. People who are bad in this life go to the bad life, sorry, go to the bad place when they die. People who are good in this life, at least according to our modern moral standards, they go to the good place after they die. And it's this great little place, this, this good place that the show depicts, it's this town that in some ways is a lot like a normal town on Earth, except everything about it is perfect and is totally catered to the people who are living there, right? Everybody has their own personally constructed house that fits their needs as a person. It's got the best food, it's got the best entertainment, perfectly catered towards the people that are there. You have a soulmate who is perfectly compatible with you. There's this. Mysterious divine servant named Janet, who will literally give you anything you ask for, if the snap of a finger. You know, and I know the show kind of changes as it goes along, but I think the reason that setup works is that people like this idea. A lot of people believe in this idea, and they at least see this depiction of heaven as a happy one, as a place where we could see ourselves being happy after we die. This is the picture we get from depictions like that. If you spend your whole life being a good person, who is kind and helpful to other people, you can spend your whole afterlife focused on yourself. But this is way too small a picture of heaven for God. You are worth too much for him, for him to just leave you in a place like that. Only the eternal presence of the perfect, beautiful, infinite triune God can satisfy your deepest longings. This is what the Bible means when it talks about rest. It's not talking about sleep. It's talking about the perfect renewal of all things. It's talking about complete satisfaction and joy for God's people in the presence of God for all eternity. And part of the beauty of this Christian vision of heaven is that it inspires and fuels our actions even now in this life. I think one of the most common criticisms of the idea of heaven that we get from a modern perspective is that it uh, promotes this idea of escapism, right? I see this criticism in my own readings. So according to this uh, critique, belief in heaven would just serve as a distraction from all the problems that we face in this life. So that instead of offending cha- uh, sorry, affecting change, we just kind of leave things the way they are because, you know, we're going to our future home in heaven. And it's true that this is a temptation for Christians. It's one that Christians have fallen into in the past and will continue to in the future. But that's a misapplication of the idea of heaven. That's not what the Bible is calling us to. Understanding that we have a final resting place that awaits us is meant to increase our boldness in this life. We can serve and struggle without fear of our end. You know, when Martin Luther King ascended the mountaintop and saw that vision of the coming glory of the Lord, it emboldened him. He went on to pursue justice even more. The beauty of heaven is inspiring. We can be courageous with the time that we have left. C.S. Lewis also has this famous quote where he says, if you aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you will get neither. I think he's touching on something that's right there. That really impacts how we perceive the world in light of heaven. If you pursue heaven, the pursuit of good on earth will naturally follow. But for Christians who are in seasons of struggle, setting our sights on our final rest also helps us in our sorrows. It helps us to lament well. Sorrow is not crippling for the follower of Christ. Listen to these words. Really powerful words from Lamentations 3. Lord, remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest. This promised land was, that was central to the identity of the Israelites in the Old Testament, there was nothing particularly special about this land. It was just a piece of land. What was special about it was that God promised to be there and to inhabit that place in a special way amidst his people. He would occupy the temple in Jerusalem, the central focus of the religious life of Judaism. The people of Israel could actually encounter the living God there. So they lived as a people group that was rooted in the presence of God. But as great as this was for a time, it pointed to something even greater. And the presence of God would not need to be filtered through a temple or through priests or through sacrifices. There would be no need to cleanse from sin in order to come into the presence of a holy God. We have a taste of this now in this life. We have a taste of this rest that is being looked forward to. The presence of sin still hinders us. We do not experience heaven fully in this life. We get little tastes of it. These little appetizers before the great feast that still awaits us. Our text is focused on on persevering, but I don't want to give a sense that the Christian life is all doom and gloom. There is an important sense in Christianity where we get to have access to unbelievable joy and satisfaction and yes, rest in this life. We look ahead to our final rest, but the reality of heaven creeps back in time and affects our otherwise normal human lives. Our joys in this life are magnified because they're merely a foretaste of the unending joy that is to come in the future. But there is an important sense that Hebrews is touching on here, that we are wanderers in a land that is not our home. We're not home yet. The analogy is that we are travelers, or pilgrims on the way to the promised land, this promised place of rest. We have been freed from the bondage of slavery and of oppression. That work is finished. What our Savior did for us, on our behalf, is a completed work. There are still some dangers along the way, though. But we have a great hope that lies ahead of us. The perfect rest of heaven, unhindered access to the presence of our perfect creator for the rest of time. You know, time, I feel like, is so often an enemy to us, in this life, it passes by way too fast. Requires faith to actually take the time to rest well in this life as the rest of time continues to move on around us, and there are so many things that we feel like we should be doing with our time. But when your work is complete, and you stand in the presence of God, your creator, time will be your friend, nothing but your friend. The days are too short in this world, but this world will end in the day which has no night or time is a joy. God is infinite. His presence is endless. You will have unlimited time to enjoy him forever. Faith will no longer be required when you have come to the rest that is the end of your faith. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest together. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, your Savior has gone before you, and he waits for you at the end of your wandering. That mightiest of kings and most faithful of servants, stands in the throne room of grace to welcome you at the end of your journey. He invites you into this completely perfect and satisfying rest of God. But before you enter in, he will look at you and he will say gently, hold on. That fear that you have of measuring up, you can leave that aside. There's no place for that here. You should see what you look like when you are reflected in the presence of your glorious an all-powerful God. To those who suffer through illness and disease, he will say that pain that was with you seemingly at every moment, you can leave that there. You have been washed with the blood of Christ. You are wholly restored now. And to those who are anxious, he will say that worrying, that constant looking over your shoulder at what might be coming after you next, just leave it aside. You will have heavenly vision here you will see that the only thing that pursues you is the love of God. To those who mourn, He will say, There's nothing left to mourn here. Death is finished. So, friends, let's look forward. Press on together. Our rest is coming. We pray with me. Father God, we, uh, we're in awe of this promise, and we thank you for guaranteeing it on our behalf. We long to be faithful as we we strive to enter that rest. Lord, please bless us as we do that. Bless us in this upcoming year. We pray in Christ's name, amen.